0: All right, welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast. Today with Xiong Lin, who is a professor of biostatistics at the Harvard University. And uh, I'm, I'm very much excited that, that Xiong, you're joining us here uh, today for the podcast. So first of all, hello, Xiong. Uh,
1: thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me. I'm really honored to have this opportunity talking with you.
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, we have a, a lot of different, op- uh, a lot of different guests with from a different backgrounds on, on, on our show. And I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that we have you today here, um, you know, because uh, we don't talk to that many academics. I mean, we you know, we've had some in the past um, and why I'm also very excited for you to be here is because, you know, the field of, of research that you're in and, and the topics that you are basically dealing with, you know, they are very, very important right now and, 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 and very up to date, so to say. So we're going to talk about a couple of things here, you know, so um, we're going to talk about the field of biostatistics in general, you know, the, the importance of data science and, and also kind of your COVID-19 research that you have been doing for the past months. So there's really uh, some some interesting topics here today, but as usual, we're starting the same way in the sense that I would like you to kind of as the first thing here for today to um, yeah, uh, ask uh, or, or ask you to kind of give us in a, in, a, in a short storytelling way kind of the different professional stages of your life and how you basically then, you know, ended up at Harvard uh, and, and, and being a professor.
1: Uh, thank you. Um, so uh, this is really exciting time and um, for both statistic and data science, and because we are living in a digital um, era. And so um, I started my undergrad uh, education in applied mathematics, and uh, when uh, but then I realized that I. Uh, It is uh, too abstract, so I would like to get connected with the data more. So, therefore, I pursued my graduate study and the Yin Bao statistics. And so, uh, that's, so that uh, is a wonderful feeling. I, I feel like I could use my mathematical and quantitative background and to uh, tackle important problems and in real world. And so therefore the uh, quantitative problems I work with are well motivated by real world problem. And so therefore if somebody who have a strong background in quantitative science, I either in uh, mathematics, statistics, computer science, engineering, but also want to solve a real world problem by using the quantitative background at statistics will be a wonderful field to get into. So I started, after I finished my PhD degree in biostatistics at the University of Washington, then I joined the University of Michigan biostatistics department as a Assistant, professor. I spent about uh, eleven years, and uh, in the first part of my career at University of Michigan, and um, then in 2005, I joined Harvard uh, University, uh, the Department of of Statistics um, in the Harvard School Public Health, and uh, then. um, later on, I have a joint appointment in the Department of Statistics, and also uh, I have served as the coordinating Director of the Program in Quantitative Genomics since uh, 2008. I was the Department Chair of the Biostatistics uh, Department and, uh, um, for a few years.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I think for first question here today, I think the the field of biostatistics is is something that a lot of people I think do not really have on their on their uh, on their radar. I think sometimes even a lot of people you know tend to forget the field of statistics itself because right now we have you know we have like data science, machine learning, right? These these terms really let's say popping up and being very hyped up about, right? That people really forget that you know pure mathematics right and 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 the the algorithms that we have from mathematics that have been already around for you know quite some time and also the methodologies that we have in statistics you know i feel like people sometimes forget that this is also you know those are fields that have been existing for such a long time so maybe as a first yeah question here today the field of biostatistics maybe kind of give us a and you know a quick explanation of the field you know what are the what 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 are the trends and and basically yeah uh, kind of give us an insight there
1: Sure, definitely. That's a great starting question. So about statistic, it deals with the uh, uh, data and the in-house related field. And so, it, in particular, it focuses on the uh, developer study design um, for um, biomedical public health research and also develop and apply um, the statistical and the computational method to analyze the data in biomedicine and public health. And so, this field is quite broad. And so, it the from the basic science to clinical science and the two population size, and so the statistic is really a useful field. It basically uh, applied to many many different disciplines, and uh, so the um, um, uh, so uh, we uh, work with uh, epidemiological study data, and so in particular, right now, giving especially giving COVID nineteen, there are lots of interest in epidemiological study uh, uh, datas, and and also uh, the. We also work with the uh, basic science. So that basically deal with really biological data. And also uh, our field, uh, many people work on clinical trials. So you probably uh, heard in recent months, and um, in the last two weeks, and uh, though there were two announcement of the success of the vaccine trials. And uh, one is by Pfizer and the one is by Moderna. And so those vaccine trials involve clinical trials. And uh, so statistician, station play a major role and in design and also analyze the clinical trials data. Uh, so, so this is really an exciting time on the floor, um, for the field about statistics. And when we uh, deal with uh, massive uh, data from the basic science, from the genome, and to population science, like those are from data collected from large number of subjects and also from clinical science. And in terms of the trend, and so the field has grown so dramatically in the last 60 years. So the in recent years and because of the uh, big data, especially in um, biomedicines and uh, in genetics and public health. And uh, so the field become more interdisciplinary and so um, so you mentioned the data science and the data science is really an interdisciplinary in nature. And so when I was the department chair, uh, we, the department launched a master program in health data science and so the program has grown dramatically in the last few Year. So is there are lots of interest in this field, and so basically it involved the uh, three pillars, and uh, um, compared to the traditional ball statistics, and for the uh, the uh, uh, health data science is involved the statistics and uh, uh, computer science or informatics and also the domain size and so um so this is really exciting time for somebody who have a quantitative background who want to solve um, a big problem in house this is a wonderful field to get into
0: yeah absolutely right and um because what we see right now is um you know that Ultimately, you know the, the basic thesis or hypothesis that you can bring in is, you know, um, artificial intelligence, you know, is never is never general. It's always specific. And and the, the real value is created at the intersection of you know different domains and the context of the data from that domain and at the intersection with the different methodologies. So what we see as well, you know, um, if we look at the publications field of uh, biology and stuff. The number of papers that uh, are being published where machine learning you know, is found is, is really increasing, right, it, it's kind of it, it has a it has a momentum right now. So if we look at, um, you know, what are the current trends that we see in research in regards to data science and machine learning in the field of, you know, biology or health in general? Um, are there some examples that you can give?
1: Yeah, this is a great question on the, so there are just so many uh, interesting problem. And uh, so I feel like sometimes uh, I, work, I work, I want to work on so many problems, but I don't have enough time. And so that's why it's important to have uh, talented youngsters and to get involved in the field to help out. So maybe I'll give a few um, examples on the, the, in the, um, Data science and statistics and machine learning in biology and uh, uh, public health and medicine, and uh, so um, uh, one example because um, uh, one of my research area is uh, statistical genetic genomics, and uh, traditionally and because of the technology limitation and the cost, and traditionally one um, um, genotype, uh, one particular uh, mutation on the in the genome. And a uh, small number of genetic mutation in the genome, and look at uh, how the genetic mutations are associated with uh, human diseases. And but now with advance of technology, and uh, w- especially with the whole genome sequencing technology, so we are able to sequence the whole genome. And uh, the uh, so the, the cost is yeah, so right now just a little over uh, a, a, a li- about a thousand dollars. In a few years down the road is. Right very likely will be $100. And uh, so this is really, really dramatic uh, in terms of the data we collect. And so, so each uh, human genome has about uh, 3 billion letters across the genome. And so if you think about the, the amount of data we deal with, is uh, huge. And uh, then uh, besides uh, the genome, so we basically instead of looking at one mutation, we look at every single position across the genome, and then to see which then look then to see which uh, mutation, a scan the genome to see which mutation could be related to human diseases. And then in the classical settings, one look at one disease at a time, but now with an electronic medical record, and then one can look at all the disease simultaneously. So basically one sequence a person on the genome and uh, then One can also connect the data with electronic medical record and then to see which genetic mutations could be related to many different diseases. And so this is really exciting time integrating the genetic data with electronic medical record data and then and also connect those data with the um, the, uh, environmental data and also the Uh, behavior data and then that can help uh, to study the interplay of the gene and the environment in causing the human diseases and also in uh, helping with the drug discovery and so the drug discovery and uh, generally if one incorporate the genetics in the uh, drug discovery the success of clinical trial will be higher so and so then also from the biology and the traditionally and then the one analyzed the using like a gene expression data using the array technology and then uh, but now with the single cell uh, technologies and the one will be look at millions of different cells simultaneously and to study the, the disease causing mechanism and so this is really exciting one can look at all type of data and using the statistical and the machine learning and the uh, tools integrated with the domain science uh, within uh, the, the context and to solve the big problem to understand the causes of human diseases and develop a particular drug target and, uh, and also develop intervention strategies. And to deal with that, and so the data, because they are so big, so therefore, the, um, there are lots of challenges one need to deal with, for example, like the data storage because, for example, like the whole genome sequencing data we are analyzing right now. It, involve like um, hundreds of thousand people and uh, it could be millions of people in the next few years and the data we deal with like this hundreds of terabytes big and so therefore the efficient storage and efficient the scalable analysis is critically important
0: that is very interesting and what you mentioned now as well lastly is like you know also the, on the innovation side for you know data formats you know because if you deal with such you know such large amounts of data, I can remember of one of our conversations that we had prior to this podcast, you mentioned as well, you know, that if you have so much data and it's just becoming more and more because you have more access to it, right? There needs to be also have, you know, there needs to be some approach to, okay, how do you store all this data, right? Which is another challenge in in, in that sense. Maybe kind of as a future, a future outlook, right? But how do you see the field evolve as well, kind of in the future? What are your personal, yeah, I would not say predictions, but more or less your feeling where... You know, what what are some things that are going to happen, maybe, in regards to the future?
1: Yeah, those are great uh, questions. And so definitely, we have entered into a digital era. And so therefore, we have to really to think about taking advantage of all those opportunities and challenges and uh, then um, to solve the big problem. So a few things um, I can um, vision, And one is, how can we analyze those um, Big data at scale, and uh, and uh, so the. Uh, those includes the data storage issues so as, as as mentioned and so the 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 trend is basically um, will uh, will be the cloud and so it's really important to uh, develop efficient uh data storage data management and also data analysis tools and uh, in the cloud and so the traditional data sharing model is that each individual investigators and uh, download the data from the DPGAP to their own institutional clusters. And this is not a very efficient way for data sharing, because the same data uh, is copied multiple times. So basically, the data sharing is the same as the data copy. So that is not a very efficient, cost-efficient model. And so the better model, is to um, uh, have the data uh, in the cloud and then bring the investigator to the data. So therefore the investigator do not need to copy the data to their own institution. So everybody access the data in the cloud. And so this is the, called the uh, common data models. And so this become a trend in the field. And so that right now, like anash has, an, multiple Enash institutions have established uh, multiple uh, data common platform. So for example, the Uh, National Human Genome Research Institute, uh, the data, uh, common data platform is called Anvil, and the National uh, Heart, Lung, Blood Institute. The common data platform is called BioData Catalyst. So that will help facilitate the data sharing and data analysis, and then that also help increase the data security because the data do not need to be copied to multiple institutions. And then if, because for the, if I mentioned that the whole genome sequencing data, for example, they are very large, and also like the imaging data are very large as well. So if suppose one copy the data to their own institutions, and then the data storage will be quite a challenge. And so for example, like in the Google Cloud, one terabyte of data right now costs about $300 a month, uh, a year, $300 a year. So if one copied um, like a couple hundred terabytes of data to their own institution. Each person have to pay their own data storage. It is not very efficient way and to store the data. So it's better to have the data in the cloud and that is much cost-effective way to store the data. So that is the one thing The so basically, uh, how can we do the big data analysis and the management at a scale using the cloud? And so by building this ecosystem. And so the other trend I see is the, um, Federated learning, and uh, so uh, data privacy, and so, for example, like electronic medical record data, uh, generally cannot leave each individual, each individual institutions, and then how can one analyze the data without leaving the data? Um, from each individual institutions and through the federated learning and, uh, and also the differential privacy. So this is um, uh, involve uh, both the statistical approach and also machine learning approach. And uh, then, and also one really need to understand the electronic medical record system. And so th- this, is, uh, this is a great opportunity and for the uh, stat station uh, AI researchers and also uh, implementation and the domain science researchers to collaborate. Uh, another field I, f- I think is the, the cultural inference for big data. So because many of the big data are from the observational studies, and uh, so and it's not based on the randomized clinical trial, and so therefore, in order to make inference about causality, and one need to use the statistical approach integrated with the machine learning approach, and to uh, uh, to make a causal inference procedure for analyzing those la- large data. And uh, so another thing I want to mention is the data, data visualization. And uh, so this is really exciting field as well. And uh, so giving so much data and uh, in many high dimension, uh, then how can one visualize the data and easily to get the main message out of the data? And so this just the few examples, just there are just so many interesting problems one can work on.
0: If we look at your specific research lab, right? and the tools that you guys use. So kind of uh, give us a little bit of an insight. You know, if you, if you, you talked a lot about cloud, right? So in regards to the storage. So now what is, you know, your personal or maybe also, you know, the, the, the research staff within your lab, what, what, what is the tool set kind of looking like in, in, in regards to, you know, do, doing your research?
1: Uh, so the two sets, so like a one of, maybe I use the one the example my, my lab has been working on. So uh, we have been involved in two uh, large whole genome sequencing consortia in U.S. And uh, one is called the Genome Sequencing Program that is by the National, uh, Inst- uh, G- Institute, uh, National uh, Human Genome Research Institute. So the other is called the, the, the Transomic Precision Medicine Program, and so this is by the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute. And uh, for the uh, genome se- uh, sequencing program, and so we uh, uh, by the end of this year, and we are going to finish the sequencing about 150,000 people with the whole genome and 300,000 people for the whole exome. And uh, then for the Transomic Precision Medicine Program, that is called TPCAD, and and so uh, we have finished sequencing about 150,000 people. And so by the two programs combined, by the end of this year, and we will have over half million people and uh, with a whole genome sequencing data, or whole exome sequencing data. And then we, we look at many different diseases, and from the cardiovascular disease, and to the lipid trade, and the COPDs, and type 2 diabetes, and uh, sleep apnea, uh, among others. And, So the data, as I mentioned, the whole genome sequencing data are just so large. And then, so really to analyze the data, we need to scan the genome, and effectively, if you think about the data, we probably, by the end of this year, we will have a billion, one billion um, um, uh, genetic variants. collected and, uh, uh, from uh, this uh, half million peoples, And so we need to scan the genome and uh, so to see which genetic mutation associated with, uh, say, cardiovascular disease. And uh, then this will help to uh, identify the, um, the drug target. And especially if uh, then, but in order to analyze those data, because the data are large and it has a couple hundred terabytes of data. And so we need to develop very efficient algorithm and also powerful statistical algorithm and to identify which genetic variants are associated with a, a cardiovascular disease. And uh, then also because the, we look at the genome and uh, those hundreds, uh, hundreds, uh, Hundreds of millions um, of genetic variants. So we do a lot of lots of tests. And so, because when one does a lot of tests, and one's likely to have a false positive uh, uh, discoveries. So, therefore, we need to develop a, a Statistical method that control for the multiple look at the data and uh, to reduce the false discoveries and then also because we look at many different phenotypes and uh, so the phenotypes and um, the, they are collected from the subjects and uh, they from multiple ethnicities and so we have uh, the Caucasians and uh, then um, Hispanic Latinos and African Americans so this is one. Big things, and in our studies, because we look at multiple ethnicities, and because of the multiple ethnicity study are more challenging, but also important in order to make the result um, applicable to multiple um, uh, ethnicity groups, and so that also we also have the some subjects are related to each other; they are from the same families, and so this also calls for uh, advanced statistical method and to um, account for um, samples from multiple ethnicities, and also from the uh, same family members. So as this is just give you an idea that to analyze such type of data, one will need to understand the statistics and uh, also need to know um, um, the uh, 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 computer science, and because the data is large, we need efficient algorithm. And also, one have to understand the genetics and the d- disease. So, in order to make the method and um, really useful for the uh, genetic discovery.
0: Yeah, especially I think it's exactly what you said, right? If if, uh, if if we look at the development, you know, in regards to the cost, you know, how much it costs to you know to actually um, sequence genome, you know, from 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 uh, let's say. From the early days to now it becomes cheaper and cheaper right and 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 that that is the beauty of science you know that you know through time it basically becomes it becomes cheaper and cheaper to get and 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 therefore also more possible to get more uh, insights right because um, in the beginning not everybody is able to you know do research within the field because of the cost but through let's say the acceleration and and you know um, the things getting cheaper in that sense, um, it, it becomes more widespread, right? And and you and you can ultimately have more data and screen more data, and, and, and that's the, that's the good part about it. Maybe as a as a next next uh, question, which I th- which I think a lot of people are very interested in, uh, obviously because it is uh, really let's say affecting everyone's life. You know, I mean, you're sitting in Boston right now. I'm here in Germany, so there's um, we're really at you know two different uh, two different places right now. Um, but you know the effects on our lives are ultimately the same because there's one, let's say, uh, reason for that, and there's obviously the, the, the COVID-19. And um, I'm very much interested in kind of you know, how this year has, has been for you in the sense of you know, how, how your activities and the research for that. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, you know, how, how your research started in that, and then maybe some of the major findings that you, that you
1: have. Uh, yes, uh, for, for COVID-19, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so that is a good question. So um, um, I, in the last few months, I have spent quite a bit, quite a bit, quite a bit of time and working on COVID-19 research me and my lab and also um, many of my collaborators. And so this, um, uh, so I started uh, working on COVID-19 research completely uh, by coincidence. And so, um, so in uh, mid February, uh, my um, formal postdoc, um, w- uh, after he finished the postdoc, he spent uh, some years on the, in uh, Singapore and then he moved back to China. And so he's a professor in the uh, School of Public Health at the Huazhong uh, Science and Technology, Technology University located in Wuhan. So in mid-February, so I wrote him a text message and asked, you know, how's your family is doing because you know the Wuhan was epic center. And uh, so uh, then he mentioned to me that he and his colleagues and had been analyzing the Wuhan uh, COVID-19 data. So uh, at that time, there was already one case in Seattle and one case in Boston. So I sensed that this may become Epidemic, and uh, so so therefore, I decided that um, to collaborate with them, and so um, through uh, this collaboration, and uh, we published. Um, a two papers and the one in JAMA and the one in nature. And so we uh, first, um, we uh, analyze the Wuhan data. We analyze about uh, 28 uh, 26,000 cases in Wuhan. And uh, then uh, we uh, look at um, uh the um, the rt values and basically the transmission on the uh, uh, reproductive numbers i think many people are familiar with rt value now and that, so basically if r r value is greater than 1 that is bad that means the um, uh, the the virus is spreading. If R less than one, then that means the uh, epidemic is under control. So we use the Wuhan data to estimate the RT values. And also we look at the intervention measures and to see whether the intervention program on the, again, Wuhan and the, uh, uh, how that work. And then we also look at the uh, epidemiological characteristics about the uh, outbreak and to see what uh, uh, what are the factors associated with the infection and also associated with the severity. And then we um, posted uh, the uh, preprint on, on March 6. Um, then this uh, because we want to share the finding to the uh, world as early as possible to help the US and other countries and so this uh, preprint got a lot of attentions after it was posted on march uh, on march 6 and then we found a uh, two uh, two uh, major things and the one is that uh, this uh, virus is highly infectious so before the intervention that the rt value was about 3.5 Then so that means each uh, infected case could affect three to four people. And then after the intervention, so Wuhan did multiple interventions. And the one is the, uh, as you know, this Wuhan is a lockdown. And so implemented the social distancing. And then they realized, then when we, un- and then after the implemented the social distancing, they also launched the, uh, uh, the centralized isolation and quarantine program. And uh, then uh, then, um, by doing this uh, multi-faceted intervention, including the social distancing, um, mask wearing, isolation, and quarantine, and uh, so they were able to drop the RT values and uh, uh, from 3.5-ish to uh, 0.2 by March eight. So it was quite uh, effective uh, intervention. And uh, then the school uh, was, um, uh, the, the, the city was, uh, uh, they had a, a zero confirmed the case by mid-March. And so basically the whole intervention program took about um, uh, two months um, the, to get uh, zero confirmed cases. And uh, then the city was reopened in early April. So so that is one thing we found. So basically the virus is um, is highly infectious if there's no intervention. To control the epidemic, the multifaceted uh, intervention strategy is needed. So which include um, mask wearing, social distancing, isolation quarantine, uh, massive testing, and also the uh, universal screening. And uh, they also had very good uh, compliance, and that helped as well. And so those are the few things, and uh, one could learn. And then we also found, uh, though this paper was um, found, was published in um, in JAMA uh, in mid uh, April, and then I was invited to testify in the um, a UK uh, Parliament. Science at Committee of Science by Technology made April and Technology in mid-April, and share with the Parliament, uh, the eight Parliament members about the uh, the findings of uh, of the Wuhan studies, uh, Wuhan studies, and also and uh, then I made uh, several recommendations as well, and then the uh, the committee. Uh, of science and t- technology of UK Parliament, then they wrote a letter to the Prime Minister Johnson on the in May, be making 10 recommendations, and uh, so including several of the recommendations uh, I made. And uh, so uh, so then um, also we uh, published the second paper and uh, in July in Nature. And so in this paper, and we the f- f- uh, uh, we develop this um, uh, dynamic transmission models. And so the major uh, message besides estimating the RT values uh, is that we estimated there is a high percentage of cases which were unascertained. So that means there were a large number of cases and which were undetected. So, we estimated about 87% of the cases were undetected in Wuhan. And so, mo- many of those cases were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic cases. And so, this tells us that detected cases uh, were only uh, uh, ice of the, uh, the tip of the iceberg. And so, these uh, findings were replicated in other uh, countries as as well. For example, in the U.S. and the CDC antibody study, they showed that the number of cases in U.S. were likely to be 6 to 24 times higher than the number of reported cases. And also, we also um, launched a um, uh, app, and uh, we call the "How We Feel" app, and uh, so this is in partner with uh, Pinterest, and uh, and also my colleague uh, Feng Zhang at uh, the Broad Institute, and uh, so this app uh, collects the uh, data of the uh, p- um, users' uh, symptoms and uh, the test results, demographic information, and also exposure information. And so this app was launched in April, and then we, so far we had over 700,000 uh, users, and also we had almost like 14 million responses. And so we published the first paper out of this How We Feel app in uh, Nature of Human Behavior and uh, in the summer. And so we found that um, we showed who were the, uh, who had been uh, tested because um the, uh, testing kits were not widely available. And so therefore the um, uh, essential worker, healthcare worker, and also people of color, they were more likely to be tested. And also we found out what are the factors associated with the positive test result. And then we found like the people of color and the healthcare workers, and, and also like the, the males, and they were more likely to have a positive test. And, and also the people, who have pre-existing conditions and they were more likely to have a positive test. And also we found that the most um, uh, the people who were exposed, who had household exposures and uh, they were uh, much, they had much higher risk of um developing uh, positive tests. And uh, so basically they are more likely to be infected. And there's uh, people who were exposed to the community cases and they were also likely to be infected. And also we found that the most important symptom was the loss of taste and smell. And uh, then also we found that uh, if we use the exposure, household exposure, community exposure, and loss of taste and smell, and we have very good prediction models. And then the, the ROC curve is almost 80 percent. And so, yeah, so those are just a few things that we have been doing and using for to help with the COVID-19.
0: That is incredible. But let's start with the first thing. So you, you said you were, let's say, invited by the UK, UK Parliament to kind of present your findings there. And... Um, you know and the, the interesting thing is that you know you early collaborated also with people that were analyzing the Wuhan data my, my, my question there is you know how how was your transfer also in, reg- uh, in regards to the US US government you know like um, the knowledge transfer there um, how, and, and and basically how that was picked up or whether there was any uh, any exchange on that science
1: I was interviewed uh, quite a bit on the, in um, in the spring on the by uh, uh, Quite a few media's and uh, in such as uh, New York Times and um, the Wall Street Journals and uh, um, uh, uh, BBC's and and so on. And uh, so the um, so I think the and also I was on the. A uh, task force of Massachusetts State, and uh, in the spring as well, to develop uh, the the strategies. And the, so the so in particular, for example, like in Massachusetts, when the uh, the the Governor Baker really appreciates science, and the task force develop. Uh, um, a uh, recommendation, uh, a report to Governor Baker. And uh, then Governor Baker follows the task force report. And uh, then the Massachusetts was the first state which launched the uh, contact tracing, isolation and quarantine program. And so that uh, that really uh, helped the Massachusetts, as you, re- you know, like the, um, in the spring and the Northeast uh, of, um, uh, in, in March, and Northeast uh, was of uh, U.S. was affected most, such as New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and uh, uh, Massachusetts. And so in, in April and uh, so uh, and also in May, and the, the Northeast became much better. And so then um, after the Massachusetts launch is a contact tracing uh, program, and then the. Uh, state of uh, New York, uh, Connecticut, New Jersey and followed as well. And uh, so I think that we, then also, like the um, the for contact tracing uh, program is because the different country the culture is different, so one cannot just simply copy what has been done in Asian country to the Western countries. So therefore, the public health intervention is critically important. And so, but those public health interventions, uh, implementations need to be tailored to each individual country's situation. And so, uh, so, so for example, like uh, the uh, in uh, Massachusetts and for the contact tracing program, and so it's important to provide us a supported uh, contact tracing program. So for example, many people who, if they isolate at home, they um, need to, um, Provide a uh, sufficient support, and so the very basic thing, just like food, for example, and so if one uh, asks people to isolate at home, and uh, then without sufficient support, is hard. So the testing is important, but it's not enough. So it basically the multi intervention has to be implemented. So in New York, for example, there are many people, especially in New York cities, and, uh, and so people live in the crowded um, apartment. And especially the people like uh, the uh, people of color, and uh, then to, to help them, and uh, it's hard for them to isolate at home without infecting family members if they live in a crowded uh, uh, apartment. And so the New York City and launched this uh, hotel program and uh, basically provide the free hotel and uh, for the uh, cases and. Uh, to isolate in the hotels, and uh, then that help is especially those cases cannot effectively isolate at home, and so therefore I think several of the, um, the strategy public health intervention strategy developed by Asian country can be tailored and uh, to the to the to the US, but one really need to uh, take into account uh, the situation in each individual countries to develop effective intervention strategy.
0: You know, I think this is also a perfect time to kind of see, you know, how research is transferred actually into society, right? Uh, a, a perfect example, and I think it has never been important, right? Oftentimes the, the, the discussion evolves around, you know, how, do you, how, how, how is the research basically going into society? Either, you know, through valorization or through, you know, um, c- creating economic value or whatever. But, you know, especially in, 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 in this case, you know, with, with uh, the COVID-19, I think it has never been more important to see and to kind of, you know, also understand maybe after this has gone over, you know, what, what, what are the problems, you know, whether, when there has been significant, you know, findings, you know, to kind of use this as as an input basically to, for, for measures. Right. And if we take, and maybe you can, you know, you you can give us some insight there because what we see right now, and we talked about this as a well-performing podcast is that, uh, a lot of Asian countries are doing very, very well, you know, and then if we look at China right now and then, and, and Wuhan and stuff, it is really, you know, the, the, the measures that have been taken are very, very well taken. And, and, and also, you know, the, the results are shown, right. The numbers are not that high. So maybe, maybe, maybe what's your opinion on this? You know, what, what, what is, what is the reason for this to, 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 to let's say come across and, and why isn't, why isn't it working at, uh, you know, in the different places?
1: Yeah, so this is this is a great question, and a few things. And the one is that um, the public health um, measures um, has been shown to, and to work in multiple Asian countries, and uh, so the 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 public health uh, non pharmaceutical intervention measures people. Uh, know those works and so the challenge is implementation and also compliance so in so in order to um, to uh, implement um, those intervention measures in different countries one had to really integrate uh, with a uh, tailor towards each individual uh, society's uh, situations and so 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 the, uh, this really need a strong partnership of of uh, multiple stakeholders, including um, government leadership and uh, academia, industry and uh, community leaders and also regular citizen. So this basically we are all in this together. So we have to really work together and uh, to get out of this. And so that is the first thing. So basically it's a partnership and of um, many stakeholders. And uh, the second thing is the, the compliance. And uh, so the, so we analyzed the uh, the how we feel data and so so for the March we analyzed the data in, uh, uh, in April and May and so for example like a mask wearing and so when we analyzed the the, uh, the May data and the, the compliance was probably 50 percent and so the how we feel data was collected across the US and so therefore how can we improve the compliance and by by um, accounting for the uh, situation and the cultures and the, in each individual uh, society and also in each individual regions. And so implementation science and is critically important. And, and so, so this really also need a strong partnership and the str- strategic planning as well. And then the third part is the, the communication. And this communication and so the, the scientific the science is wonderful, but also it's important to communicate the science to the general society effectively. So the general public can really understand the science and can can um, Appreciate the science and also can become a partner with the scientists and to fight against the COVID-19 together. And so, so therefore, this is really a multifaceted effort and to in order to get us out of this.
0: You know, maybe as a last question for today, what, what are some of your personal observations of the status quo and, and kind of like how you see the next upcoming months maybe maybe from your perspective on the research field, but also, let's say, in regards to what we see what we see in society and politics. Um, maybe kind of as a future outlook. Um, I don't want to call it predictions, but, you know, ultimately, every every person has, a, has an opinion, which is based on which is based on uh, observations and, and oftentimes also data and, and, and conversations and, and exchange with other people. So um, maybe, you know, kind of as a last thing here for today would be great if you could share some of these um, future outlooks from your side.
1: So, okay, let's, let me talk about uh, COVID first. And so um, next few months uh, will be critical. As you know that we are entering into winter and uh, then the number of cases have been going up globally and in many countries, especially in uh, North America and, uh, and also in Europe as we have observed. And uh, so, um, so therefore, the the public health interventions uh, remain important and uh, uh, critically important in the next few months. And uh, so, uh, to reduce the number of um, infections and also reduce number of uh, a number of deaths. And uh, so, um, so then, how can we learn from uh, the? What we have learned in the spring and also the summer, and to make to uh, implementation of the public health interventions more effectively, and to increase the compliance. And uh, so, basically, how can we improve the implementation? How can we improve the the compliance? So that is the first thing. And the second thing is the. Uh, the, the vaccine. And so this, as you uh, probably noticed that uh, in the last two weeks, was uh, really wonderful in terms of the scientific advance of the vaccine trials. And uh, so the uh, announcement, so like a Pfizer, for example, today, they just announced that their final data showed that the Pfizer's vaccine is 95% um, effective. And uh, Moderna uh, announced earlier this week that uh, their vaccine is also 95 percent effective and so this is really uh, wonderful news and uh, for the community and then the then um, so the uh, next but then the vaccine will not be um, available and uh, to uh, uh, to everybody uh, until later next year and so the uh, vulnerable group such as the um, healthcare worker, essential worker, and uh, the elderly, and they will get uh, uh, they will be prioritized and um, for the vaccine uh, distributions. and then so, then, uh, so, so for the vaccines, and uh, so not everybody will be willing to take the vaccines and based on the historical data. And so, therefore, the next few months is on um, how can uh, get those vaccines approved and also develop the effective uh, distribution plans and also how can one uh, improve the um, vaccines uh, compliance. And uh, so, have uh, this basically will need a strategy development as well and uh, make more people willing to. Take the vaccines. So basically, we need a stronger science and support those vaccines are effective, and also implementation science in terms of the distribution and also the compliance. And so, so we so the uh, 2021 and uh, uh, will look promising and giving the advance of the technologies, and but also they will we will feel. Uh, we will face a lot of challenges as well. So one cannot uh, wait until, say, the vaccine will be the silver bullet, and this won't happen. So really needed a uh, uh, multiple facet. Uh, approaches, including the non-pharmaceutical interventions and there's public health intervention, and plus the vaccines and also um, plus the treatment uh, as well. So this is on the COVID side. So this really, again, this really a team effort. And we need a multiple stakeholder work together and uh, to uh, fight against the COVID. And so in terms of the general, um, Outlook and uh, for data science about statistics. And so this is really exciting time and, uh, for quantitative scientists, uh, for both stations, and the data scientists. And just yes, there are so uh, many interesting problems, and there are so many big problems we need to solve. And uh, then with the um, Quantitative tools like statistical tools, um, machine learning tools, AI tools, and uh, then by working together of the stati- by the statistician and the machine learning uh, data scientists, and also in collaboration with the domain scientists, and uh, we are going to have very bright future to solve a big biomedicine and public health problems and using those tools
0: thanks a lot for this great insight. I think, you know, it is very clear that there's a lot of opportunities, you know, uh, in, in, in this field. And, and I hope, you know, that, that uh, a lot more people will, you know, will, will join and find joy in the intersection of this, you know, because the, you know, the demographic issues and the challenges that we have, you know, in regards to population growth, and, you know, and 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 the challenges that we have in, in better healthcare systems, and then also in regards to personalized methods and, You know, I think the field is huge and there's so much potential for that. And then, you know, with with technology advancing and the ability to process and analyze as well, bigger amounts of data, I think there's so much that we can do here. So thanks a lot for being on the show and, and giving us this insight. It was great talking to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you too.